0: Are you a woman running a small business, or do you know a female entrepreneur? As part of Visa Canada's commitment to support small businesses and female entrepreneurs, they've partnered with iFundWomen to offer $10,000 grants and a year of business coaching to 10 deserving applicants. Learn more and apply at iFundWomen.com forward slash Visa hyphen Canada today. That's iFundWomen.com forward slash Visa hyphen Canada. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Mark Bristow, chief executive of Barrick Gold, one of the world's largest gold mining companies. Bristow took the helm of Barrick in 2019 after it acquired his much smaller company, Rand Gold Resources, where he had cemented a reputation as perhaps the mining industry's most able operator, successfully developing mines throughout Africa. I asked him what it's been like to lead Barrick, which has over the years ran into disputes with some of the communities in which it operates. In Chile, for example, clashes with the local community forced it to walk away from its proposed Lama project, even after it had spent billions of dollars. In Tanzania, people have filed hundreds of grievances alleging that security forces around the mines engaged in heinously violent acts. Bristow recently helped cut a deal there which shares more of the revenue from the mine with the country, and he predicted it would become a model for the rest of the mining industry. We talked about poverty, gold prices, and the pandemic, which Bristow said has made the world a more insular place. As always, this interview was edited for Clarity and Brevity. Hey, Mark. Thanks a lot for joining me on Down to Business.
1: Morning, Gabriel. Thank you.
0: Someone said to me recently in the mining industry that it's been An almost embarrassingly good year, despite the pandemic, because gold prices reached an all-time high this summer. I mean, Barrick, you guys have hiked dividends. You recently announced $750 million that you would return to shareholders. What's the past year been like for you?
1: Well, you know, Gabe, I don't understand that comment because you know that's why people invest in gold uh is to be able to hedge some of their other investments during times of crises and we had multiple crises <laughs> through twenty twenty and and again, my concern is that you know everyone's just rocking back on their heels and thinking it's all good, but what about worrying about investing in the future and so and I don't think this crisis is over so uh, the gold mining industry started off 2019 really well in uh, led by our merger with Moran Gold Resources and then closely followed by a string of mer- mergers that created sort of comp- gold companies with critical mass that you could sort of invest in them longer term than just the traditional trade. You know, that's been good and that prepared part of the mining industry for 20. 20 crisis, but we've still got some work to do as an industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, you said you don't think the crisis is over either. Tell me more about what you think.
1: Well, you know, today you're seeing lots of forecasts of growth uh, on the back of a, a terrifyingly negative 2020. So it's all very relative. And we've got all this money being printed. It's almost like a race to print more in the developed world. But no one's really taken stock of the damage that's been done to the industries. That's global industry, local industry, and even more so the emerging market. You know, I think there's euphoria right now because in, in a crisis like 2020, people forget there was a lot of disposable income because it didn't have anywhere to spend. So it chased other assets. You know, you saw, and and we are seeing evidence of bubbles forming, you know, across the U.S. economy, especially. The worry for me is emerging markets because you know this whole insular populism amongst the developed uh, world has sort of led to neglect as far as the developing world, and more importantly, the massive impoverishment of more people. The World Health Organization is forecasting extra 100 million people going below the poverty line because of 2020 crises.
0: You've done a lot of traveling during this past year because you guys have a lot of operations all over the world. Has the impact been visible? Have you been able to see this at some of your sites?
1: Yeah, I think we've had crises. These sort of financial crises hurt uh, the emerging markets. Argentina is in a crisis, currency crisis. Chile is in a political crisis. You know, uh, we've seen the whole of South America turn negative over the last year or two. Africa has managed better, but again, you know, my my pet thesis is, you know, we we as uh, you know privileged developed countries should be really not only worrying about our internal challenges and issues, but we should be looking globally and and the way the pandemic was managed really highlighted the inability for the world to act globally anymore. And we've all gone provincial.
0: Poverty and mining in impoverished countries is something that you see as like the strongest argument for mining, right? Is that you can go into say Mali and open a gold mine. And I think you at one point told me of something like 7% of the country's GDP.
1: And by the way, Canada is a great pioneer traditionally, historically, in opening up and supporting the emerging markets, particularly Africa. And it was in the 90s that Brian Mulroney moved to to get the developed world to forgive debt across the sub-Saharan region, which which led to a new era in sub-Saharan Africa as far as both politics and finance economy. And the support of you know a re-emergence of that part of the world. I mean that a, a little bit tired now, and and the the Sub-Saharan African Initiative has run out of steam because you know the great financial crisis forced the developing world to refocus back into their own problems. That's Europe and and the North Americas, and and also from my point of view, we didn't support. The investments and and now you see the the emergence of the environmental mantra, something that the mining industry has been working on you know for, certainly since I've worked in the mining industry and you know the ESG vogue is critical, but it's I would suggest the s and the G part of ESG is as important if not more important if we really do worry about ensuring that our world, as we know it today, survives, you know, future generations, for future generations, sorry.
0: And just so people who don't know those terms, you're talking about ESG investors who look at their portfolio and say, we want to make sure we're doing something good for the environment, that we're doing something sustainable is the S, or maybe it's social license. And G is the governance being transparent. But you're saying, the social license and governance part get neglected sometimes because people are too focused on the environment, maybe, and climate change.
1: Exactly. And I mean, not not to take away from that, it's critical. But the impact of the environment by the emerging markets, particularly Africa, take Africa as an example, it's relatively small. You know, Africa's got, the central part of Africa is a negative carbon footprint. And so what are you going to do? You know, starve the emerging world of... Funding, while you focus on you know the, the, the developed world where you feel more comfortable that people are applying and complying with the environmental part of the ESG and you know the social parts you know there's so many more poor people than there are wealthy people in this world. and if we don't pay attention, you know poor people, particularly very poor people, impoverished people. They spend their entire day working to just survive the next day. How do you prevent them from being left behind by society? Because as soon as they're left behind, that's a real crisis. Because then how do you manage the environment around poor people? And on top of that, we know that poverty breeds radicalism. And, you know, we've seen that ugly head of poverty rarity on the back of the COVID pandemic, even in the developed world. So I've been very disappointed how the global politic has played out on the back of this pandemic.
0: Is it vaccine distribution you're thinking about now? Is it aid? Is it in terms of government stimulus? What what specifically do you feel like we could have seen?
1: Well, I think it's highlighted the importance of having very competent international agencies that coordinate with the leading agencies within the developed uh, world and developing world, and I and I just believe that we haven't done that right, and and that politics has been at the forefront of trying to manage a very serious uh, viral pandemic. And you know, I would just point out that you know, coming from Africa, I've lived through many of these. And successfully, you know, worked with people to support and reverse the impact. You know, HIV has killed many more people than COVID has killed. And malaria kills 3,000 people a day uh, in Africa. And we've had, you know, a number of very significant Ebola outbreaks, which is also a viral disease. I would add poverty to that as well, although it's not a disease. It's certainly a pandemic in many parts of the world. But I mean, you talk
0: about it like we the thing about mining is, though, and this is something we've seen in the last year, is that it's oftentimes when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And it's not difficult to find a mining project somewhere in in the developing world where there's a community that is, you know, vocally against it or that claims that a mining project has made them worse off by hurting their water. So w- why does it go wrong sometimes, I guess?
1: Well, it's because traditionally in the past, mining and even today, you know, a lot of the sort of small scale mining is exploitative. And certainly that the very, my very thesis calls on responsible mining because, you know, mining ha- does impact the environment, but you can manage it just like you manage the impact of urban development on the environment. And it is, you know, our responsibility in the mining industry to to ensure that we recognise all stakeholders and not just shareholders, who often think that, you know, you buy a mining stock and you want windfall profits instantly, and that forces management sometimes to err on the exploitative side of things rather than the partnership part. And the modern world today. You young people today, they work as hard as we do, we did. They're as ambitious as we were, gave. Um, But the difference is they want to make a difference. And they don't just want to exploit things. They want to be responsible. They want the m- companies that that they invest in and work for to be responsible. And, and you know, so that's – and I support that. And I think, you know, that's the movement that needs to happen. And – and again, you can't starve the emerging world from development because we in the, you know, in the developed world has, have done such a bad job in, in our stewardship of the, of our own environment.
0: Well, you, you are known even before you, way before you came to Barrack like two years ago for going into sub-Saharan African countries, places where there's poverty and developing very successful mines. But since you've come to Barrack, right, there are a number of projects where I would say there's been crises, right? I mean, there are a number of mines that Barrack operates where there are still ongoing crises. And it seems like the crises are often life or death. And not just that, it often seems like the mining industry is adversarial with the activists who are trying to raise the profile of these issues. Or oftentimes it seems like there's litigation with these companies. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's been like coming to Barrack where you didn't build the mines, you didn't start fresh. You know, you came into a situation where there may already be some pretty serious allegations, and what that's been like.
1: So, absolutely. Um, you know, we we inherited some legacy issues, uh, uh, largely uh, the Chile issue, which was just the failure of a, a project.
0: This is the Lama, where there was a lot of environmental and, and clashes with the local community and the, basically just...
1: Well, and there, and there are also many supporters. So, you know, the, the point is that at the end of the day, the mine didn't work. So, you know, that Chile has got a, a very active anti-mining lobby group. It doesn't mean to say that it has a, a right over people who want work. And by the way, Gabe, I mean, Chile is in a predicament verging on a on a sort of Venezuela-type re- revolution. Why? Because they neglected their poor people, and people don't have jobs. And, you know, we live in um, in the cities and you know operate like a developed country, but there's a significant part of the population that's been left behind. So that, that comes with the territory of mining, as it should with any m- a company. And, you know, we should all be reaching out to our communities, our host countries, and you've seen that issue raise its head more and more recently. So that was one. And and again, what we've done is we've dealt with the courts. We I withdrew the the litigation. We settled with the courts. And we now have a responsibility one, to walk back the the impact that Barrick made in the past, and at the same time evaluate the the potential of those projects because it's a national asset. And you know people should understand what both. Barrick shareholders should understand what the value really is, and so should the Chilean government and the communities who are impacted or have been impacted by this project. All I can tell you is that today, Barrack's relationship with the Chilean authorities and the communities are substantially better than when, when I arrived on the 1st of January 2019. And the other one was Tanzania. And, you know, Tanzania today is what I believe a model mining project should look like in that it's a partnership with the state. It has very real commitments to support infrastructure and local, local content. We have always done that. You know, all our operations across sub-Saharan Africa, that's the legacy RAND gold operation. We have a dominant executive group represented by the the host country's nationals, which means the state nominated directors onto the board of the operating companies and the central partnership company, and that we would split the economics 50-50 after capital. So therefore, if you make a lot of money, like we did last year, you share it all down the middle with the state. And if you don't make a lot of money, You don't hide behind all sorts of tax schemes. You still split it down the middle and share it with the state. And by the way, that principle, I believe, represents modern day mining projects and how they will be funded.
0: These were mines where in Tanzania, going back there in North Mar, the most serious allegations, I mean, murder, rape and hundreds of claims of of just really brutal stuff and you guys owned a very large stake in it but under your leadership you took it over and from the outside just to tell you what it looked like it looked like for years the leaders of the country and the mining company were just sort of at a deadlock and just sort of staring at each other and the country was saying they wanted more money and no one was blinking and then from the outside what it sort of looked like you did was you came in and you agreed to give them more money. Other people in the mining industry don't want to make those deals.
1: I've always had on the operating boards, representatives of the country in which we operate, plus the labor representatives, the union leadership that sit and reflect on how we're doing on a quarterly basis. And, you know, coming out of South Africa, you know, that was the, that's what changed South Africa and started the recognition of the majority of the population. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's in the spirit, you know, Canada has been a pioneer of mining and certainly the political leadership on both sides of the aisle have supported and engaged constructively on development around the world. And, of course, they want their national c- companies like Barrick to behave responsibly and be upstanding at, at, with the, the sort of absolute highest ethics in the way they run their business. And and at the end of the day, my point is that mining is how to stay. You know, we all need mining every day of our life. But it's who who are the miners going to be for in the future? And that's that, that's my responsibility with Barrick is to work with our, our business and all our leaders to ensure that we are a mining company that's acceptable to future generations and and on the back of that one of our key mission statements is we want to be the most valued miner not the most valuable but valued because if you're the most valued people want to work for you first of all because they value your business secondly countries want you in their country because they value you and thirdly your owners or investors want to invest in you because they also value. We've got a long way to go to get there, but but that's in my mind if you speak to young people and you say, how does this sound to you as a mining company? They'd say, absolutely. That's what, you know, we want to be part of that. And so we, you know, we've got a lot of work to do and, you know, it's not only Africa. When you go to Nevada, you know, people want to be part of our business now. They don't. They don't see a mining company as, as a sort of isolated factory. They, we, we employ 7,000 people there. They go into the, the communities every, every day. And, uh, and we are the community. And we have a responsibility to not only our community, who are effectively our workers, but our host state uh, in the form of you know we, we represent a large part of the northern part of that state's economy.
0: I mean, do you think that there is a cultural change underway or a cultural change that that needs to happen in the mining industry?
1: Yeah, I think a little bit of the former. And and I would point out there's a necessity because otherwise you're not going to be a miner. And just to add to that, people forget that the mining industry employs highly skilled people. It pays relatively high wages relative to other industries. And again, you know, to survive, developed countries and developing countries need highly skilled individuals in the economy otherwise you know your economy is supported only by service uh, employment and that doesn't deliver engineers and accountants and significant social skills and we do all that whether it's education or or health mining is an all encompassing institution that impacts broadly through a local economy. And it's the same in the developed world as, as it is in the developing world. Yeah. Well, just
0: looking ahead maybe before we get off the phone, I mean, you mentioned earlier you don't think the pandemic is over yet. When you look out at it the next year, what do you think you see?
1: Well, I think the pandemic comes to an end when, you know, we've got a global solution and we've rolled out the vaccines, and we are behaving inclusively as a world, that's when the actual pandemic sort of comes to an end. The impact of that is the big unanswered question, Okay, And what is the damage of printing all this money in a few isolated economies around the world? And the fact that a large majority of people who can't afford it were without a job and and i think you know one thing that that we've seen more and more commentary on now is if you look at the great financial crisis although there was quantitative easing most of that money printing ended up getting caught within the banking regulation whereas this time around there's a lot of money going into joe public in their hands so you are genuinely putting extra money supply into the economy extra liquidity extra money and that has its own problems you know inflationary problems it you know we haven't seen inflation for decades now and we know that it happens and and when it does it really stresses countries and i think the way i would put it is every analyst you listen to has a different view of what's going to happen um that to me says, you know, it's a and and you saw the way we managed our 2021 guidance and and returning capital to our shareholders. We were conservative in our approach, considered in that fact that, you know, we need to build Barrick into a business that uh, that has relevance or continues to have relevance. And I think the the mining industry also has to look at itself and keep consolidating because, you know, in this modern world the, the the pools of capital get bigger and bigger and fund managers have to invest in businesses that have relevance to their their portfolio. And so, you know, I think the mining industry not only has to continue to clean up its act and you know and practice the ESG principles, but it's also gotta become more relevant to the population and investors alike.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about these issues.
1: Thank you, Gabe. Uh, Always a pleasure. Uh, Anytime.
0: That was Mark Bristow, Chief Executive of Barrick Gold. Thank you for listening to Down to Business. This week's episodes, music and production were provided by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed listening, you can share this episode with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can get all
1: your business news at financialpost.com.